0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 84, and it's a continuation of what you just heard in episode 83. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 84 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Now, let's turn our attention to brain examination number two, which was likely to have been conducted somewhere between Friday, November 29th, and Monday, December 2nd, 1963, according to Horn's assertions. Item number one. One of the most important pieces of evidence supporting a second brain examination is the Blumberg Report, written by Dr. Pierre Fink in 1965. In early 1965, Dr. Fink sent two pieces of correspondence to the director of the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, Brigadier General Jim Blumberg. Military commander in the U.S. Army. The first of these two documents, dated January 25, 1965, was a two page summary of Dr. Fink's participation in the autopsy of President Kennedy on November 22nd and November 23rd, 1963, and his subsequent testimony before the Warren Commission on March 16th, 1964. The second document, dated February 1, 1965, is described by Dr. Fink himself as typewritten notes and covers President Kennedy's autopsy on November 22nd and November 23rd, 1963, a subsequent brain examination, and his attached Warren Commission testimony. For the purposes of the memorandum that Horn wrote, these two documents together are considered collectively as the Blumberg report. Item number two, Within the Blumberg report, Dr. Fink wrote the following, Commander Humes called me on 29th of November 1963 and told me that the 3 prosectors would examine the brain at the Naval Hospital. I asked if a representative of the neuropathology branch of the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology would be invited to the gross examination of the brain. Humes told me that no additional persons would be admitted. Humes, Boswell, and myself examined the formalin fixed brain. A U.S. Navy photographer was present. Now, let's stop right there. This is a remarkable statement coming from a meticulous and precise professional like Dr. Fink, and for the following reasons. Number three First, he indicates that he was present at a brain examination on or after November 29, 1963. He is very clear on the date. This is a date that is at least four days after the hypothesized earlier examination, held on or about Monday morning, November 25th, 1963. Note that Dr. Fink was called by Dr. Humes on November 29th, 1963, about the brain exam, but Fink does not precisely state when the examination occurred, meaning that it could have occurred on November 29th or later. Item number four, if true, Dr. Fink's account of a brain exam separate and distinct from the first one in the company of Dr. Humes and Boswell would mean that Dr. Humes and Boswell were present at two different brain examinations and that they have intentionally tried to obscure this fact from all official parties to whom they have spoken or testified about this matter over the past 33 years. Do I need to say that again? Did that sink in? Let's read it one more time. If true, Dr. Fink's account of a brain exam, separate and distinct from the first one, in the company of Dr. Humes and Boswell, would mean that Dr. Humes and Boswell were present at two different brain examinations, and that they have intentionally tried to obscure this fact from all official parties to whom they have spoken or testified about this matter over the past 33 years. Wow. All right, let's pivot to the next item. Item five, perhaps equally significant. On page eight of the Blumberg report, Dr. Fink wrote the convolutions of the brain are flat and the sulci are narrow. But this is interpreted as a fixation artifact because the change was not observed at the time of autopsy. It is clear from the above passage that the brain examined by Dr. Fink on or after November 29, 1963 did not look the same as the brain he examined at the autopsy on November 22, 1963. Well, Dr. Fink interpreted these changes in external appearance as artifacts due to fixation. But another possible interpretation is that Dr. Fink observed and recorded Changes to the brain's external physical appearance simply because he was examining a different brain at the time of this supplementary examination. Should anyone wonder whether Dr. Fink had an opportunity to examine the brain in any detail at the November 22, 1963 autopsy, since he arrived after its removal? Well, they need only refer to the author's summary of the ARRB interview of Dr. Carney on May 21, 1996. Dr. Carney was present that night on November 22, in which he recalls that President Kennedy's brain was carefully inspected outside of the body by doctors Humes, Boswell, and Fink. There's one final quote from the Blumberg report that is notable. Color and black and white photographs were taken by a U.S. Navy photographer of superior and inferior aspects of the brain. Commander Humes takes sections, but does not take coronal sections in order to preserve the specimen. Number seven. As we noted earlier, Navy photographer Stringer, who was present at the earlier brain exam on or before Monday, November 25, 1963, is on record in his ARRB deposition transcript that he did not shoot basilar or inferior views of the brain and, in fact, did not change his mind even when shown photographs in the present-day collection in the archives showing such views. This faint recollection of witnessing a photographer shoot inferior views of the brain therefore corroborates that he was at a different examination than was John Stringer. And Stringer's conclusions that the black and white brain photographs in the collection today, that is the Ansco super high pan shot with the film pack are inconsistent with the portrait pan black and white and also inconsistent with the format, the duplex film holders of the black and white film that Stringer shot at the brain exam. And the mere existence of inferior basilar views of the brain, of which Stringer had no connection to, all of this together corroborates that the brain photos presently in the archives were probably taken at the second examination witnessed by Dr. Fink. Furthermore, Dr. Fink's statement to Blumberg that coronal, that is, serial or open sections were not made in order to preserve the specimen, is another indicator that Fink was present at the examination of a different brain from the one examined by Stringer since Stringer clearly recalled coronal or serial sectioning and photography of those sections in both his ARRB interview and his ARRB deposition. This all implies that Dr. Humes and Boswell and their apparent concealment of the fact that there were two different brain examinations are concealing primarily the fact that the brain was sectioned and that photographs were taken of those coronal or serial sections on a light box. Number nine. Another important point is Dr. Hume's previously inexplicable refusal of Dr. Fink's recommendations that the Air Force Institute of Pathology neuropathologist be present during the brain review. And in the context of two brain examinations, this makes sense because if Dr. Dick Davis was present at the original examination of President Kennedy's brain on or about November 25, 1963, and his presence would not have been desired in this second brain examination. We recall that Boswell indicated the presence of Dr. Dick Davis at the first brain examination. Item number 10, a summary report dated June 21, 1996, of the ARRB interview of the Gawler's Funeral Home in Balmer, Tom Robinson. It reveals that there was a fist-sized portion of the president's brain that was missing in the back and the president had a defect in his posterior skull and he suffered a loss of brain tissue for the posterior portion of his brain. This massive loss of brain tissue in the lower occipital area of the president's brain is problematic for the single-bullet theory and no doubt if someone were trying to bolster evidence for the single-bullet theory, Pictures of a brain that showed little or no damage in that area would be more desirable. Horn essentially points this out. Number 11. The HSCA interviewed Chief Petty Officer Chester Boyers, a U.S. Navy Chief Petty Officer in charge of the Pathology Department of Bethesda Naval Hospital at the time of the autopsy. Staff member Mark Flanagan wrote that Boyers recalled preparing paraffin blocks and tissue slides of tissue from the body on November 22nd, 1963, and that he prepared six blocks of eight or 12 sections of the brain on December 2nd, 1963 as well. Given the fact that he prepared these slides on December 2nd, that makes it more likely that the later brain examination took place closer to the later dates. Again, possibly on the November 29th date that Horn is hypothesizing as the second examination date. Horn spends a great deal of time stating facts and establishing Boyer's credibility related to the timing of his recollections, as they relate to these slide preparations. Item 12. Horn also cites an interview done by the HSCA and dated August 16, 1977, with Leland Benson, who was the supervising histopathology tech at Bethesda during that time frame in November 1963. She recalled seeing evidence of a routing slip that was sent Monday morning and that the tissue sections were processed and wax blocks were then shaved into micro sections and stained by hand that day. And she also recalled that the brain tissue was processed, further giving credence to the idea that there was a brain examination which took place on or around Monday, the 25th. Item 13 The inventory and receipt related to the transfer. To the National Archives on April 26, 1965, of the autopsy materials contains a series of historical transfer documents. One of which shows certain items, including film processing, which took place on November 29, 1963, the same date that Dr. Fink recalled that he received a call from Dr. Humes about the examination of the brain. While not definitive, it is certainly another corroborating piece of evidence. Number 14. And finally, Horn cites some of the things we've heard so many times before, and this time out of the Seibert and O'Neill report, as to the significant loss of brain tissue observed at the autopsy the night of the 22nd, and it being just another supporting reason why someone might have taken these actions, to revise the narrative around the condition of the brain and the damage it sustained. So again, what does all this mean from Horn's perspective? What are his conclusions regarding brain examination number two? Well, let me read to you the excerpt that is contained in the conclusion of his memo. The second brain examination hypothesized in this memo apparently took place between November 29, 1963 and December 2nd, 1963, as evidenced by the precise recollections of Dr. Fink and Chief Boyers. With the word precise meaning in this context that they provided exact calendar dates for events related to a brain examination rather than giving guesstimates such as a few days or two or three days later as other witnesses characterize their recollections. The two photography memoranda reportedly dated November 29 1963 in the Berkeley to Lincoln receipt of the April 26th, 1965 transfer may corroborate a late November 29th, 1963 brain examination and the event reported by Fink in the Blumberg report. Dr. Humes and Boswell appear to have been the two individuals present at this exam who were also present at the first hypothesized brain exam. Dr. Fink was the key player present at this second apparent brain examination who was not present at the first apparent brain examination on November 25, 1963. In addition, the identity of the photographer at the second hypothesized brain examination remains unknown as of this day. However, if the pattern in the evidence in support of two separate brain examinations accurately reflects two different events, then the photographer at the second was certainly not John Stringer the most likely motive for conducting a second late brain examination would have been to suppress the true nature of the president's head wound by recording a different pattern of damage in a different specimen. In support of this contention are the following indicators. First, the apparent absence of Dr. Fink at the first brain examination. Second, possibly having that tissue from the president's actual brain sectioned during the early exam processed by a different person. That is processed by Benson rather than Boyer, who was responsible for processing the tissue from the second brain or late exam. Third, Dr. Hume's refusal to allow an Air Force Institute of Pathology neuropathologist to witness the second brain examination when the same individual, Dr. Davis, may have witnessed the first examination and forced Dr. Hume's decision not to surreally section the brain, which Dr. Fink examined. In contrast, according to Stringer's 1996 recollection, the brain examined at the early exam was indeed surreally sectioned. All of these items collectively point to a carefully controlled compartmented operation in regard to orchestrating who was present and what procedures were performed at the two separate brain examinations. Under this hypothesis, the purpose of including Dr. Fink at the second brain examination would have been to legitimize the procedure in the eyes of history. It would also have permitted the creation of both photographs and an official witness to record the fact that the brain of record from the late exam was not sectioned. The September 1997 testimony of former FBI Special Agent Frank O'Neill at his ARRB deposition verified rather conclusively that just such an event took place and that a brain markedly different in appearance from President Kennedy's brain at the time of the autopsy was at some point photographed. O'Neill's testimony corroborates Stringer's testimony that Stringer did not take the brain photographs that now reside in the archives collection, and it corroborates Dr. Fink's written statement in the Blumberg report that the brain looked different in appearance at the supplemental exam, different than it did at autopsy. Exactly when the decision may have been made to conduct the examination of a second brain remains unknown, However, the author has always found it curious that Dr. Pierre Fink was present at neither the first hypothesized brain examination nor the Medical Center at Bethesda on Saturday morning, November 23, 1963, when Humes and Boswell read the tissue slides and examined an early draft of the autopsy report. Well, there you have it. In the end, this evidence is compelling for the existence of a second brain examination on a brain that was not the president's, and the placement of photos in the official collection that are not authentic. Wow. Yet... There are still apparent contradictions in the details of some of this evidence. One of the things which Horn does find troubling are some of the same things that we found troubling in prior episodes with Stringer's testimony and and his apparent inability to remember that he had even talked to the HSCA or that he had taken a trip to the archives to look at pictures back during that same time frame. Well, those kind of things really do impugn the credibility of a witness. This, among many other things, are objectively highlighted in the rest of the 30-page memo that Horn put together, but they don't change his opinion. It's well done and well documented, but not foolproof. And it's courageous. You can read it on our website if you like, and if you're a juror right now, you're probably pretty exhausted. I know I am. I may need more than a sandwich. It's probably going to be a sandwich and a beer tonight. Or, no, wait, it's Saturday night, so how about some pasta and some wine? All right, that sounds just fine. Well, look, we have a lot to figure out here, don't we? But as always, in the JFK assassination, fact is truly stranger than fiction, and sometimes just truly fantastic. And I'm not sure we're going to get any more fantastic than this.
1: When you took the black and white photographs of the brain of President Kennedy, did you use a press pack? No. Can you identify from the negatives in front of you whether those photographs are from a press pack? I refer to numbers nineteen, twenty-one, and twenty-two. I think they are. Yes. Would it be fair? say, then, that by your recollection, that the ne- black and white negatives in front of you now are, were not taken by you during supplementary autopsy, so This is Ansco. When you say this is Ansco, what do this you mean? What is Ansco film? What is Ansco film? Well, it's a super high fan, and uh, I think it's from a From a Sorry, From a film fact. Have you got one of those other negatives I can see? From the fact 17 or 18. What and what negatives? The spelling of that film. A-N-S-C. See the difference in it. Just I identify this for the record, you now have in your hand a negative, negative. Number, mm-hmm. number 18. It is uh, identified with the film code on it. With the notches up with on the, the corner. On this, it has no notches. When you say this, you're now referring to the black and white a negative, negative, the and white and white negative. which is from a film pack. Mm-hmm. Mr. Stringer, if I recall correctly, during the course of the, the deposition, you identified three different uh, factors relating to phototopography of the brain that would suggest that you would have had an identification number in it, you would not have used a film pack, and you did not take a basilar view of the brain. Is that correct? I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether I took it back, I, I don't know. But see, this is uh, from a film pack because they are numbered. This is film number two, film number one, And, and, and three. And it's from a film pack. Okay. Because when it comes out of a, uh, a holder, it is identified by the notch because you have to uh, load it in the with the notch. Okay. So the first three black and white negatives would presumably have been taken sequentially by a black and white film pack. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? That's what it was. Then. Okay. On the color photograph showing the superior view of the brain, do you recognize any identifications, tags, or markings? Mm-hmm. Now, this film is also different than the other. You see the code in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, on on all the other photographs, it is ektachrome. Okay, and these these are not. Ectochrome nases, or you're not certain. It's I'm not a certain, different. but they're different. It's, I think, it's a different type of film. It could be the. ansco film, like this. Did you ever use ansco film yourself in conducting medical photography? Not very often. often. Did you use ansco film in the taking the autopsy? Not that far. Is there any question in your mind whether you are the photographer of these images that are before you right now? Yes, if it's a film and if it's a, uh, a, a film pack, I have no I have no recollection of using film pack. Do you see any identification markers or identification numbers on the photographs? No, the only thing is there's any Fisher. Instrument ruler, I think. Fisher scientific. I don't know whether there was a one in the one of the medical photographs or not. There was a, a ruler, but I don't know whether it was a Fisher or not. You've now been shown all of the uh, images of on the supplementary autopsy. Did you see any images that would show a brain of the conception in the right now? Not Are there any other photographs that you remember taking yourself during the supplementary autopsy that we haven't seen today? I hadn't thought we had done some sections. Feet, right? mm-hmm. But I don't see it. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it could be the same. But this could be identified by a photo. Mm-hmm. Basically, they have all of the notches. Without looking at the photographs, yeah. This makes sense. Do you have a recollection in your mind of whether the cerebellum on present hand was disrupted? See the hand photograph. You mean uh, well, you mean the damaged? It was damaged, lacerated, partly. Yeah. Was it? Yes. Yeah. Do you see any damaged cerebellum in these photographs?
0: Thank you for listening to episode 84 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.